Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. We're continuing our series in 1 John today called Authentic Walk. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to 1 John chapter 4 and take out the sermon notes that you received in the worship folder when you came in today. If you forgot your Bible, just raise your hands and one of our ushers can loan one to you. We want to make sure you have a copy of the scriptures in front of you so you can follow along. Uh, for those of you that maybe have been gone for a couple of weeks or perhaps you're joining us for the first time today, that's all right. I want to catch you up on, on what you've missed. Um, 1 John is written by the Apostle John. He is one of uh, Jesus' inner circle. He, he, uh, Peter, James, and John were the closest disciples of the twelve to the Lord Jesus. Uh, John was also the last living apostle uh, that ministered with Jesus. It's believed that John wrote his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, around 90 to 95 AD. In the sunset of his life, ministering around Ephesus. Knowing this date is important, uh, I've mentioned a few times in this series, because it means that John was writing what we see here in our Bibles in 1 John about 50 years after Jesus had died and was resurrected and ascended. And it also means that John had spent the last 50 years seeing all his best friends die for the sake of the gospel. There are two key words that John uses more than any other that I have also mentioned in this series, and these two words are going to show up again today in the passage we're going to look at. The first word is love. He references love, uh, both the kind of love that we should have for one another as believers in the body, but also God's love for us and the love we should have for the Lord. And he mentions love more than 25 times throughout 1 John describing the incredible love God has for his people and how that one-of-a-kind love should inspire and motivate us. The other word is know, K-N-O, as in knowledge. John uses the word know to refer to acquiring a spiritual knowledge or experience. It's both intellectual and experience that he uses the word for, and he uses it 20 to 30 times throughout this book, depending on which Bible translation you have. Now, these two words are going to show up again in today's passage. In two previous passages in this series, John urged and instructed us on how, how believers should demonstrate love to one another horizontally. Today, he's going to address the believer's vertical relationship with the Lord by talking about God's love for the believer. Thus, our big idea for today is this, God's love meets our greatest needs. God's love meets our greatest needs. We learned a few weeks ago that this veteran of gospel ministry had been arrested, sent to Rome, cast into a large vessel filled with boiling oil, that did not harm him. He was then released and banished to the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. 
He was later released from Patmos and returned to Ephesus and died around 98 AD. Now, I bring this up again to remind you of John's life experience because John was the only apostle to escape a violent death, but he also had plenty of opportunities to doubt God's love for him. And he also had plenty of opportunities to walk confidently in God's love for him. In fact, it could be argued that one of the reasons John was willing to endure so much in ministry for the Lord is because he knew how much Jesus loved him. And so he was willing to lay it all on the line and do whatever it took to tell others about it. So John, in this passage today that we're going to be looking at, takes off his prophetic hat that he's had on for the last couple of weeks, and he puts on his pastoral one. He's going to answer for us two questions at least. The first being, how do I know that God really loves me? And another question he's going to answer is, how should the fact that God loves me change my life? How should it change my life? And so with that, if you would uh, look at your Bibles with me in chapter 4, verse 14... Now, I'm going to do something a little different today than I usually do with my outline. You'll notice on the sermon note handout that I have main points, and then I have need met. I'm going to do my best with the Lord's help to draw a straight line from the kind of love described in this passage to the need it meets in your life and my life. And then I'm also going to give you not just applications today, but I want to give you implications. I didn't put a blank on your outline for that, but it will be on the keynote screen behind me. An implication is, okay, what does that mean? That God loves me this way, it meets this need, what's that saying? Then I'll give you an application. So, we're going to take plenty of notes today, in other words, and it'll be good. My hope is that in the future, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe next month, next year, when you're having a dark day, You'll be able to pull out those notes, these notes from today, and be encouraged and reminded of just how much God loves you, how he loves you, how it meets needs in your life, and what the implications are. And so in verse 14, John says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Here's point one on your outline. God rescues us with his saving love. God rescues us with his saving love. And the need that that meets for us is atonement for my sins. He rescues us with his saving love, and the need that it meets is atonement for my sins. Throughout history, God has required payment be made for sins committed against him. And there were only two options given. It must either be our blood or someone else's. John is saying that God, as the person offended by our sin, offered up payment for us so that we wouldn't have to. And he did so in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. So here's the implication what, what does that mean specifically, the truth that God rescues us with his saving love? Well, the implication is that 
he loves you too much to let you die forever. He loves you too much to let you die forever. Jesus told, chose to die for your sins because he would rather die than be separated from you forever. John talks about this in verse 14 where he says, We have seen and testify. Now why does John lead out with this? I think he's trying to make at least two points. First of all, I think he's trying to send a message to the false teachers that he mentions earlier in the book. He condemns the false teachers in chapter 2, and then they come up again, I think, in chapter 3. I think he's trying to say, I was there with the man. I've seen, and I can testify, but you can't because you weren't there. I think he's also trying to encourage his audience by saying, I was there Take my word for it. Jesus is who he says he is. He did what he said he was going to do. He's the real thing. Eyewitness testimony is powerful because it contains credibility. I mean, let's be honest. Which local news channel would you like to listen to? Channel 1, Eyewitness News, or Channel 2, We Heard It From Someone Else? Right, there's a reason why news channels, local affiliates across the country have snatched up that term eyewitness. They're trying to say, we're the channel to tune into. Don't watch those other guys. They don't, they don't know what they're talking about. We will be there first, and we'll tell you exactly what happened. So watch us and help our ratings go up so we can charge more for advertising. That's how the business model works. Sorry. So John is saying, we've seen and we can testify. What is he able to testify to? Well, in verse 14, the Father has sent his Son. His one and only Son, his perfect Son. Jesus gave up closeness with the Father and comfort, the comfort of heaven by making himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The sinless Son took on the full wrath of his Father for sinful sinners, so we wouldn't have to. And he did it to be the savior of the world, to save people from the consequences of their sin. In the Father's world, who were enjoying the Father's stuff and wanted nothing to do with the Father, to save people that had rebelled against God, had cursed God, mocked God, followed God's enemy, the adversary. Jesus came so that anyone who repents of their sin and by faith trusts in him alone for their salvation could have forgiveness and eternal life and an intimate relationship with the Father through the Son. It's difficult, I think, for human authors, or well, it's difficult for me, and I think it's difficult for the authors of Scripture, even inspired by the Holy Spirit, to come up with words that describe the great love that the Lord has for us. It's because no words seem to suffice. However, author David Roper, in his excellent devotional book on Psalm 23, he's made a good run at it that I think's worth sharing. And when I read it a couple of years ago, I saved it and I was like, this is, oh, this is good. This is good. This is one of the best attempts at defining God's love that I've seen. And so I want to share it with you. Roper writes... 
No matter how damaged we are or how wrong we've gone, our vileness does not alter his character. He is eternal love, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We are not what he wants us to be, but we are not unwanted. Frederick Buchner marvels at the folly of God to welcome lame brains, misfits, and nitpickers, and holier-than-thous, and stuffed shirts, and odd ducks, and egomaniacs, and milk toast, and closet sensualists. But that's the way he is. And that's a good spot for an amen. Because some of us fall into one of those categories. So what do we do with this? Here's your first application. I think the fact that Jesus is the Savior of the world and that God sent his one and only Son to die for us, it means that we need to make him the most important relationship in our lives. Real Christ followers know that only one person in the universe loved them at their worst by giving them his best. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And because he gave his best for us, he deserves nothing but our best in return. You can tell who humans love the most by simply looking at who gets their time, who gets their money, who they talk about most, and who they post about most on social media. Humans are naturally wired by God to talk about what they love most and to devote energy and time and resources to what they love most, which therefore then begs the question, if you profess to know Christ as your Savior, are you talking Jesus up? If somebody goes to your Facebook feed and looks through all your posts, would they see anything about Jesus? If somebody opened up your calendar or your checkbook, would they see Jesus in your calendar or your checkbook? Because Jesus deserves the best of your time, the best of your worship, the best of your first fruits, and he deserves to be talked about by you. So make him the most important relationship in your life because he took care of your biggest problem, which is your sin problem. And that sin problem created a salvation problem. He met the need of atoning for your sins, which means he loves you too much to let you die forever. Now, although it feels like we could just close and say amen and close in prayer, I have more to share. <laughs> That's just one verse. And so look back at the text with me. John continues to talk about the love of God in verses 15 and 16. He says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Here's number two on your outline. God connects with us through his abiding love. He connects with us through his abiding love. And the need that this meets for us is God's presence with me anywhere. 
God's presence with me anywhere. You see, the Lord isn't some Coast Guard cutter that saves us from the sinking ship of our sin and then just drops us off on land to never see us again. No, instead, here's the implication of his abiding love, and that is that he loves you too much to leave you alone. He loves you too much to leave you alone. Jesus Christ not only saves us, but he also desires a relationship with us. The Lord made this possible by providing the indwelling Holy Spirit so we can have fellowship with him like we would have in he, with him in the Garden of Eden and, and like we will have with him in heaven. The Father sending the Holy Spirit after Jesus ascended into heaven, removed the constraints of his humanity, and made it possible for him to be with us at any place, at any time, with multiple believers. So who gets this kind of personal relationship with John? Well, John says in verse 15, it's, it's whoever confesses. The Greek word that's used here is homo legeo. It means to say the same thing or to agree or to concede. It means in this context, John is saying anyone who agrees with God that they are a sinner that needs to be saved and repents of their sin and places their trust in Christ, their faith in Christ for salvation, that person will get to abide with God. And God will abide with them. Now, what is this word, abide? It is probably amongst the top five words that John uses in this letter. In some translations, it's rendered remain, remain in him, or he remains with you. Uh, abide is the Greek word meno. It means to remain present in a place or to continue on a current course. We know it's one of John's favorite words because he uses it more than two dozen times in his gospel, the gospel of John, and he uses it more than a dozen times in 1 John. We learn from verse 15 that confession is not only a requirement for getting to abide in God, but it's also evidence that a person is abiding in God. Confession is not a one-time event for the Christ follower. It's a lifestyle. The person that knows Jesus personally should regularly be confessing their sin in order to maintain their fellowship with him. Next, John says, verse 16, God is love. God is love, probably one of the most popular verses in the Bible, even quoted by unbelievers in the world. It's on bumper stickers. It's on billboards. Unfortunately, it's one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible as well because a lot of people interpret it as, well, God is love, therefore God wants me to have what I want, and he would never be displeased with me. And that's not true. Here's what it really means. God is love means that love is such an integral part of his character that it is difficult to separate love from his identity. It means that if God wrote a dictionary defining terms from the Bible, uh, he, there would be a picture next to... Love, a picture of him next to love, defining what love is. 
It means that God pursues us in love. It means that he provides for us in love. He punishes sin in love. He disciplines in love. He listens to prayers and answers them and sometimes doesn't answer them in love. It means that God created love and has always been loving and always will be regardless of how we feel, whether he's doing what we want or what the world tells us love is. John says in verse 16, whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Verse 16 reminds us that the person who makes time for the Lord in their life proves that the Lord lives within them. Not long ago, I was talking to my mother on the phone back in Illinois, and I was on our cordless phone, our landline, because we don't get great cell reception in our house. And Well, while I'm talking to my mother, the handset starts beeping at me, and I look at it, and it's saying the battery's low. And I discovered it had been away from its base for too long. So I had to return the receiver to base and then find another one in the house that had been abiding on the base for a while. And that second handset, because it had been abiding on the base for a while, it had power. Although we receive the Holy Spirit when we give our lives to Jesus, the only way to get the continual benefits of the Spirit's power, the only way to maintain that intimacy with the Lord that he wants with us is we have to abide in him. We have to spend time with him. We have to spend time at base. And so, to the abiding teenager that feels she has no friends, Jesus says, I'm here. Come, come charge with me. Come spend time with me. To the abiding man who never had a close relationship that he wanted with his earthly father, Jesus says, I'm here. I'm here. To the to the Abiding woman who struggles with anxiety when she's home alone. Jesus says, I'm here. Spend time with me. Abide in me. To the, to the single mother who longs for the companionship of a husband. Jesus says, I'm here. I will never leave you alone. These are just a few ways that God's love meets our greatest needs. And so I think the application is plain. And that is that we need to make time for him. We need to make time for him. The, the benefit of God abiding in us is interconnected with us abiding in God. And John is saying that those who abide in God, who remain in him, who spend time with him, connecting with him, that is evidence that they actually know him. Therefore, any person that professes to have a relationship with Jesus Christ ought to have a designated time each day in which they spend time in his word and in prayer. And if you don't, it raises a serious question with eternal consequences. Do you have a relationship with him? 
If you don't desire to spend time with him, and if you go a few days or a week or more without spending time with him and never miss him, John is saying it raises the question, do you know him? Because those that do know him would miss him. They would desire that time with him. You see, because the person who professes faith in Christ but doesn't make time for him is really saying, even though you have loved me like no one else in the universe, at my worst, you're still not worthy of my time. That's what you're saying with your actions. And anybody not worthy of your time is not loved by you. Which then raises another question, how could you not love him? When you see in the scriptures how he's loved you. I dream of the day when our members at Vanguard abide in Christ so consistently that they become so filled with the Holy Spirit. Our community says, man, what is going on over at that church? There's something different about you people. I mean, there's a lot of folks that go to church in this town, but they don't look like and act like and talk like those Vanguardians. I think I need to go see what's going on over there. So, he connects us through his abiding love. That means God's presence with me anywhere. He loves you too much to leave you alone is the implication, and the application is make time for him. If you claim to know him, make time for him. Because we make time for what's important to us. Verses 17 and 18, by this, John says, is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Here's number three on your outline. God changes us with his perfecting love. He changes us with his perfecting love. And the need that meets for us is a better life becoming like Christ. A better life becoming like Christ. You see, verse 16 tells us that God is love, but the way God loves is often misunderstood. Although the New Testament teaches that the gospel has always been come as you are, Jesus never intended for you to stay as you are, though. You see, to the Lord, letting you stay the same would be unloving to him. Thus, the implication is that he loves you too much to let you remain the same. He loves you too much to let you remain the same. Why? Well, first of all, because being ourselves is what got us into trouble with God in the first place. Do you realize that? <laughs> you doing whatever you wanted and not changing and being independent and is, is rebellion against God. And that's what created your problem with him. Second reason I think he wants to change us is that Jesus lived the life we were designed to live and supposed to live. Therefore, Jesus Christ didn't save you and me 
so we could just kick back and chill until he comes back. Instead, he saves us to change us. And another reason is, another reason that he does this is so that we can have confidence. Notice in verse 17, John references, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. This is a reference to the fact that all Christ followers will stand before the Lord and have their lives evaluated by him. After this evaluation, eternal rewards will be given out for everything that's been done in his name and for him. If you need some references where this is talked about, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in Romans chapter 14, just to name a few. But the reason we struggle, one of the many reasons I think we struggle with change and God trying to change us, is that we've got the adversary sitting on one shoulder telling us, no, no, man, the more sin you do, the more fun you'll have. But the Lord is sitting on the other shoulder going, no, 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 more sin means more pain in your life. Some of you know what I'm talking about there. The adversary, though, he says, no, 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 change is bad. Just stay the same. But the Lord says, no, 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 change is good. Be like my son. But because we stubbornly resist change, the Lord forces us to change by allowing or causing us to experience pain and loss, and failure, and sickness, and loneliness, and betrayal, and so on, and so on, in order to perfect us. Again, I'd like to quote David Roper, because he insightfully and eloquently explains how the Lord uses trials and affliction to change us and bring us closer to him. Roper says, our discomfort is God's. He hounds us. He hems us in. He thwarts our dreams. He foils our best laid plans. He frustrates our hopes. He waits until we know that nothing will ease our pain. And nothing will make life living except his presence. You see, Roper is trying to say, and the Lord tries to say throughout the scriptures, that he will try to strip things away from our lives that keep us from walking closely with him. And he does it in love. He does it so that we will get to a point where we want nothing but him. So John tells us in verses 17 and 18 that if we allow the Lord to change us with his perfecting love, we can gain the benefit of being able to stand before him someday with boldness and confidence, not being ashamed of the life we lived. Because we sold out completely for him. That's why in verse 18, John says, whoever fears has not been perfected by love. That is another often misquoted verse. In other words, he's saying the person who does not abide in Christ does not need 
excuse me, does not get the benefit of being perfected by his love, which means they'll be afraid when they stand before Christ because they did not live for him. On the other hand, if you are allowing his love to perfect you and grow you and change you and you are walking closely with him, you will not need to fear or be ashamed of anything when you stand before him someday. Thus, the application is this, at least one of the applications that comes to mind. The Spirit may give you another one, but one that came to my mind is this surrender to the change He wants to make in you. Surrender to the change He wants to make in you. Doing so takes a Christ-like humility because it means admitting that I need to change. But surrendering will make the process easier. I can promise you that. You see, what this means is that the struggle you went through last year and the one you're going through this year and the one he has planned for you next year, it's all the Lord working to make you more like his son because he loves you. And one thing the son had that many of us don't yet have, is a relationship with the Father that says, whatever the Father wants me to say, I say. And whatever the Father wants done, I do. That, that's a succinct summary of Jesus' relationship with his Father. And until you and I can honestly say that, we need to change. So have you surrendered to his perfecting love? Or are you fighting and kicking and screaming? No, no, I won't change. No, no, no. Just surrender. It'll be easier. Finally, verses 19 to 21. John says we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Here's number four, the last point on your outline. God ministers to us through brotherly love or sisterly love. If you're a sister, you can write sisterly. The need that that meets is experiencing his love in the flesh today. One of the many reasons the New Testament is filled with commands to love one another is that the Lord knows we not only need to hear about his love, we also need to see it. Others showing it to us. Thus, the implication is he loves you too much to let you walk alone. He loves you too much to let you walk alone. He doesn't want you to try and walk with him alone. You can't do it. It's so, John says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother. Now, most of us read that and go, well, I don't, I don't hate anybody. I'm, I'm a pretty nice guy. I, I try to love everybody that I can. But here's, here's, I've been thinking about this a lot lately in John as he's repeated this, this theme of whoever says, I love God, but then hates his brother's a liar. He's, he's brought this up a few times in his letter. I've been thinking about this, and I'm becoming more and more convinced that American Christians are less likely to hate 
their brothers and sisters in the church. Instead, I think what the adversary has duped us into doing is just withholding love. So it's like, well, I'm not really hating. We just withhold love. Isn't that kind of the same? And, and, and the way, the, the, way we, the adversary is getting some American Christians to do it is they, first of all, they only love those in the church they like or that are like them. Which, if you think about it, is, is kind of crazy because requiring someone to be likable is obviously an unbiblical requirement and it's anti-gospel. Because Jesus didn't require us to be likable before he loved us. And he, and he loved us while we were still unlikable. In fact, I think the Lord puts people in the church and in our small group because, and he puts people in our church and in a small group that are different than us on purpose because it forces us to love people different than us. And that's good. It makes us learn to love like Jesus did. But the other way I'm seeing American Christians withhold love is just by being too busy to love their brothers and sisters. It's an extremely crafty scheme by the adversary. You see, getting us to hate another believer is just too obvious. I mean, that's just, no discerning believer would fall for that. So the adversary knows that. Instead, what he does is he gets us to fill our schedules up with a lot of good things that are easy to justify so we have no room and no margin to love anybody else in the church or to be loved by them. So, so here's the application. Make time for biblical fellowship. Make time for biblical fellowship. According to scriptures, this should be done in a small group and when the church gathers for corporate worship. This is, this is one of the many reasons why uh, being faithful in small group attendance and worship attendance is so important. Because in addition to your soul needing to be in the presence of other believers, other believers need to see you. But again, don't let the adversary somehow trick you into thinking, oh, nobody will miss me if I'm gone. Yeah, they will. They just don't always say it. They need your presence. And you can't be loved on, nor can you love anybody else if you're not here or if you're not at your small group consistently. So God ministers to us through brotherly love, that allows us to experience his love in the flesh today. And the implication is that he loves us too much to let us walk alone. And that means he wants to use you to help somebody else not walk alone. And that means you need others to help you as well. So make time for biblical fellowship. Well, the influential Swiss theologian... Karl Barth was once the brightest thinker in the American, excuse me, in the 20th century. Um, he was very influential in Christian theology. And Barth was once asked, What's the greatest thought you ever had? It's a great question to ask a brilliant thinker that's written volumes of books of, on theology, right? Well, listen closely to what this bright, brilliant thinker said. What's the greatest thought I've ever had? 
Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. God loves. His love meets our greatest needs. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.